You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of the collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Sun Mystery and the Mystery of Death and Resurrection. It is volume 211 in the collected works. Lecture 1 is entitled The Life of the Human Soul in Sleeping, Waking, and Dreaming, given in Bern, March 21st, 1922. We can learn about the deeper riddles of the human soul only by considering the whole of human experience. Obviously, this experience encompasses not only the time we spend in a fully waking, in a fully conscious waking state, that is the time between waking up and falling asleep, but also the time between falling asleep and waking up, a time we spend in a state of obscured consciousness. Of the contents of this state, only dream activity rises to the level of ordinary consciousness. It is important to consider this alternation between sleeping and waking from a variety of perspectives. From the perspective of everyday life, the dream state is a transition from sleeping to waking. As I have often pointed out in other lectures, it is important to distinguish between a dream's imagery and its dramatic progression. We must consider not only the dream's sensory contents, but also the inner drama that unfolds. As dreams progress, tension often builds either until a resolution occurs or until we wake up at the height of the tension. We must distinguish this dramatic progression from the images the dream contains. For example, suppose we dream we are hiking along a mountain path. We come to a cave and go inside. As we go deeper into the cave, it gets darker and darker and we feel increasingly uneasy until finally we are downright afraid. We know we must go on, but we cannot because we encounter an obstacle of some sort. We feel more and more afraid. You see how the tension is building here. But we might also dream something like this. We see a threatening object approaching us in the distance. As it comes closer, we make out more and more details and our anxiety increases, culminating in a state of panic. In terms of their dramatic progression, these two dreams are the same. In both cases, the inner movement is one of mounting tension, although it is clothed in different images. We must see the images and the dramatic progression of the dream as separate elements. In most cases, we find that dream imagery is derived from daily life. Although much of what we see in dreams is transformed or masked, we can still somehow understand that our earthly circumstances and experiences reappear in the images of our dreams. What is actually going on when we dream as we are waking up? We know that as far as the soul-spiritual part of our being, we call it the astral body and the I, capital, is concerned, the time between falling asleep and reawakening is spent outside of our physical and etheric bodies. 
we are then in a world that we cannot perceive with our everyday consciousness, because the astral body and I have not yet developed the organs needed to perceive it. Nonetheless, time spent outside of the physical body during sleep is full of activity. Although we cannot perceive it, the life of the astral body and I is actually richer during sleep than it is by day when we are awake. Everything that plays into our dreams, for example in the form of mounting and discharging tension, fear, anger, rage, and so on, which can be clothed in a variety of images, is with us from the time we fall asleep to the time we wake up. In these out-of-body states, we inhabit a different world and participate in its action, just as we take part in the events of the outer physical world through our senses while we are awake. When we wake up, our soul-spiritual components, the astral body and the eye, re-enter the physical body and immerse themselves in its organs. In this instant, we again become able to perceive the outer world of the kingdoms of nature, minerals, plants, animals, human physical bodies. We relate to this outer world through the physical body's soul-pervaded organs. But what happens if we immerse ourselves in the etheric body and remain at that level for a moment before taking hold of the physical body completely? When that happens, forces arising from the etheric body shape the images of a dream. These images take the form of reflections or recollections of our life. When we fall asleep, although we have already left the physical body, some momentary abnormality may also prevent us from leaving the etheric body immediately. In this case, before passing over into complete unconsciousness, we are likewise surrounded by the etheric body's dream images. With the surging activity of the astral body and I, which is typical of the time between falling asleep and waking up, is already beginning. Consequently, we must make a distinction between the images of the dream on the one hand and its dramatic progression or dynamic flow of forces on the other. I have just described this essential distinction to you in theoretical terms. On a more practical level, specific soul exercises enable us to strengthen the astral body and I to such an extent that we remain conscious instead of slipping passively in and out of our etheric and physical bodies. When we learn to avail ourselves of the universal cosmic ether outside of the body, we arrive at perceptions that we would otherwise not have been able to have. The ether that makes up each human etheric body is simply a portion separated off from the universal cosmic ether, which is everywhere. At some point before birth we gather up the portion of universal ether that becomes our etheric body. We carry this portion with us from birth to death. The universal cosmic ether, however, remains imperceptible to us unless we strengthen the astral body and eye to such an extent that we can hold on to them even outside the physical body and even when we are not asleep. Having learned to do this, we can then perceive the etheric world outside of ourselves instead of perceiving only dream images arising from the personal etheric body. What is actually going on here? 
The physical world remains spread out around us, but for the moment it does not concern us. If we have done the appropriate exercises, the physical world remains present in the way that memories are present. We can survey it. We do not step outside of it, as is the case when someone hallucinates. But it does not concern us. Having strengthened our astral body and eye, we perceive what is happening in the etheric world, not the physical world. And the etheric activity that we can now perceive is actually nothing other than what you find described in part in my book titled An Outline of Esoteric Science. In other words, once the astral body and I have learned to achieve the body-free state, which is also our normal state every night during sleep, and become strong enough to perceive within the cosmic ether, the world that first appears to us in images is the world of imagination. The physically perceptible world is only a small portion of the cosmos. The expanded perception of body-free consciousness also makes us aware of Saturn, Sun and Moon existence, and so forth, in addition to Earth existence. We can perceive all this in the imaginal world. This is the first stage in learning to perceive supersensible realms. When we learn to empty our consciousness of imaginations, we leave the etheric world. The result is a state of soul that we can control deliberately. We dwell in images, then suppress them. This is the level of experiencing the cosmos through inspiration. The world of inspiration is never far removed from us. We dwell in it every night during dreamless sleep, but normally we are not capable of grasping its activity with our consciousness. In this world our perception is not limited to images that ebb and flow, arise and die away. When images arise, this world is silent, but as they fade away an inner sounding of sorts becomes evident, adding a new mode of perception. In the inspired world we perceive the actions and deeds of real spiritual entities. Although for the most part esoteric science describes the evolution of the cosmos, the activity of the higher hierarchies, angels, archangels, and so on, as revealed in the cosmic ebb and flow of imaginations, is also reflected there. Let me read that sentence again. Although for the most part, title Esoteric Science, describes the evolution of the cosmos, the activity of the higher hierarchies, angels, archangels, and so on, as revealed in the cosmic ebb and flow of imaginations, is also reflected there. The beings of the higher hierarchies weave in the surging waves of activity that we experience in the world of inspiration. During a physical life on earth, an essential part of our existence is truly free only during the time between falling asleep and waking up. When we enter the world of inspiration, we realize that this essential aspect of our being is incorporated into a world of supersensible beings. In fact, from the time we fall asleep to the time we wake up, we belong to this world, and our souls move among supersensible beings. Imaginal consciousness provides a limited view of their activity. In effect, the first imaginal level of supersensible consciousness consists of the images these beings compose for us. 
on a second inspirational level, instead of simply being confronted with images of supersensible beings, we also become aware of the activity of these beings in the ebb and flow of their images. At the same time, we ourselves are part of this world of active spirituality. When we break through to this level of consciousness, we are as free of the body as we are ordinarily in dreamless sleep, when we belong to a world where spiritual deeds take place. This world shows us where we are coming from when we rush toward birth to begin a new earthly existence after having spent time in the world of spirit and soul. Essentially, although we return to it each time we fall asleep, entering earthly life at birth means that this other world is extinguished from our consciousness. In the time between death and rebirth, as a new birth approaches, the inner activity of the astral body and the eye becomes so weak that their deepest wish is for something to come to their rescue so they can avoid perishing in spiritual inactivity. After death, the human being develops through a series of spiritual events. In the early stages of life after death, consciousness remains very alive and the earthly consciousness of the past life may even be remembered. By participating in spiritual activity, human consciousness ascends higher and higher. Later, however, it starts to fade. As rebirth approaches, the human being's situation can be compared to that of a person near the end of an earthly life, when memory starts to fail. The person grasps at memories but cannot find them. Similarly, a human being approaching a new earthly life snatches in vain at reality and longs to be filled with reality. At this point, feeling and will activity are strong, but ideas have become dull. Developing any inner content becomes impossible. The human being grasps at ideas which are more and more obscured, while the will becomes increasingly powerful. Longing drives the human being into a new incarnation, into a, an earthly body provided by heredity. Using this body as a tool, the individual will once again be able to think, albeit only about a physical outer world. Nonetheless, the conceptual activity that has faded away will be rekindled. Thus, it is the longing to be able to think again that drives a human being into physical incarnation. During the portion of an earthly life spent in sleep, the ability to live as a spiritual being gradually develops until passage through the portal of death begins the cycle anew. What we experience next, after learning to perceive the world of inspiration, is the mystery of human life in a supersensible world between death and a new birth. The next level reveals this supersensible world as it really is. As you know, a cycle of lectures I gave in Vienna in 1914, titled The Inner Nature of the Human Being and Life Between Death and a New Birth, describes some aspects of events leading up to a new earthly incarnation. As the ascent continues, we enter a state that is totally inaccessible to our ordinary consciousness. In our waking consciousness, we experience three distinctly different soul conditions, thinking, feeling, and willing. There are also three such states in sleep, 
but we usually distinguish only two of them, light sleep, in which dreaming can occur, and dreamings, and dreamless sleep. The first can be compared to thinking in the waking state, the second to feeling. Very few people realize that there is also a third state of even deeper sleep. We remain unaware of the difference between the middle state, dreamless sleep, and deep sleep, which is comparable to willing in the waking state. Nonetheless, this third state exists. I am certain that some people notice the difference between these two levels of deep sleep, at least when they wake up. On some nights we experience only the two states of dreaming and dreamless sleep, and we never enter the second level of deep sleep, which is clearly different from mere dreamless sleep. Some people, however, will sometimes notice that they feel totally renewed on awakening. This is an indication that they are emerging from unusually deep sleep, from deeper levels of being. I will describe this difference in detail because, as I said, we do not take it into account in our ordinary consciousness. When dreaming, we exist outside of our physical and etheric bodies, in a world comparable to the sphere around the earth where normally invisible interactions occur between blooming plants and sunlight. These interactions elude our ordinary consciousness, but this supersensible realm is all around us. It is the realm closest to the world we experience through our ordinary waking consciousness, and we are submerged in it whenever we dream. In deeper, dreamless sleep, we are submerged in a realm that also exists all around us, but inside plants. In dreamless sleep we become like spirits that can creep inside plants. In the third stage of deepest sleep, however, we are completely submerged in the mineral kingdom. During this stage, mineral processes, the alchemists of earlier times called them salt processes, are at their most intense in the human body, and we abandon the body not simply to a plant-like level of existence, but also to the mineral state. When we become capable of consciously entering the realm we ordinarily experience only in deepest sleep, we truly understand what happens inside minerals. We usually see minerals only from the outside, but living in this world is like seeing them from the inside. I'm sure you will see the relationship between this statement and one of the descriptions of the spirit land in my book titled Theosophy, where this reversal of perspective is also described. Finding our way into this reversal means finding our way into a world where we share not only in the deeds of the higher hierarchies, but also in their essential nature. We get to know the beings of higher hierarchies in ways similar to the ways in which we perceive the soul qualities of human beings in the physical world. At this stage we leave the world of inspiration and enter the world of intuition. We give ourselves over not only to the activities of spiritual beings, but also to the beings themselves. This is also the realm where we experience the reality of karma. If we were to suddenly become conscious each time we entered this third stage of sleep, we would perceive our own karma. We would perceive how past earthly lives flow into our present life. In deepest sleep we experience our karma and carry the consequences of this experience into the physical body. The human physical body itself, however, is not suited 
to perceiving anything of this sort. Initially it lacks the appropriate organs of perception. We must first develop organs of internal perception just as we once developed eyes for outer seeing and ears for outer hearing. Developing physical organs of internal perception would kill us because the human body cannot survive when the forces that produce sense organs are turned inward. If we could turn these forces inward, we would be able to view our own karma with physical organs. In reality, we can do this only with spiritual organs through intuitive cognition. Human beings cannot perceive their destinies without first performing the appropriate exercises to develop this faculty. For the sake of the argument, let us assume that this is possible. Perceiving one's own destiny without preparation would immediately trigger the desire to develop organs of internal perception, such as eyes that could see and ears that could hear inside the body. The subsequent awakening would be no ordinary waking. Forces brought back from sleep would transform the body internally. In other words, the body would be killed. Owing to the unique organization of the human constitution, its sole spiritual portion, the astral body and the eye, can spend only a moment in the etheric body alone before it must also enter the physical body. The astral body and the eye descend into the physical body as soon as dream imagery arises through their association with the etheric body. At that point, however, the etheric body must immediately relinquish the contents of these dream images. Anything experienced outside of the physical body cannot be taken into it. The physical body must be left as it was when the unborn human being decided to use it and its organs and descended into it from the world of spirit and soul. In this sense, our experiences on the far side of the threshold, which become imperceptible when we awaken, are a reflection of what we undergo between death and a new birth. Observations of this sort complete our picture of the human being. They also show us that without access to physical bodies for perception, human beings in the waking state of physical earthly existence would simply drift through life as weak, lethargic spiritual beings, incapable of perceiving anything. We must recognize that human souls between birth and death exist in a state of dulled consciousness and become lucid only because they avail themselves of physical bodies. Thus a materialistic philosophy is relatively justifiable with regard to activity on earth, because without the physical body the soul's spiritual portion of our constitution would be oblivious to earthly life. At this point we might ask, Is it possible to get a clearer look at the time between falling asleep and reawakening, the time we spend as beings of soul and spirit? During this time we live and participate in a world where ebbing and flowing images and sounds that rise and fade away mingle with other perceptions comparable to physical sensations of taste and so on, as described in titled Esoteric Science. If our consciousness is suitably strengthened, This world also shows us our karma, our destiny, as it unfolds from one earthly lifetime to the next. With regard to getting a closer look at this world, it is helpful to consider a being that manifests in earthly life with an astral body but no I to speak of. 
Animals are such beings. Like us animals, sleep and wake up. When an animal falls asleep, its astral body moves out of the physical body and immediately enters the world of ebbing and flowing imaginations and sounds. When the animal awakens, the astral body moves back into the physical body. If we look more closely, however, we can perceive imaginations and sounds ebbing and flowing in the earthly air as the animal sleeps. When it wakes up, its respiration carries the soul back into the body on waves of air. Once in the body, the soul stimulates the senses to participate in earthly life. The soul flows in and out of the body through respiratory processes. Depending on the animal species, cutaneous respiration may also be involved. In considering the human being, however, we must take another element into account. Even as infants, human beings possess the potential for speech. Our respiratory organs, unlike those of animals, make speech possible. Their form allows air to enter in such a way that an eye, as well as an astral body, can take possession of the physical body. We can now begin to understand how an animal's astral body first unites with its physical body. During embryonic development, the astral body moves inward, and its activity then builds up the physical body, sculpting it from the inside. In effect, this is the opposite of the process that carries the astral body out of the physical body on the rhythms of the breath. In other words, an animal's respiratory organs determine its physical form. The bodily shapes of different animal species are the consequences of their respiratory organs, if we take respiratory organs in the broadest possible sense. The shape of an animal body directly reflects how the animal's soul settles into it. For example, consider an animal with a proboscis as compared to one that has a head in which the mouth is the dominant feature. The shape of the rest of the body is based entirely on how the animal breathes because the soul lives in the ebb and flow of air in respiration. Having understood this, we recognize a significant truth. An animal's physical body is shaped by its respiratory organs in the broadest sense, but the human physical body is shaped by speech, by respiration transformed into words. In humans the word quite literally becomes flesh, that is, we owe our human form to our ability to speak. As I described earlier, during life between death and rebirth, or falling asleep and waking up, human souls belong to supersensible worlds and circulate among the beings there. If we observe human souls in this state, we find that their movements can be transmitted to the ebb and flow of air. We shape the movement of air when we speak, and air movements of the same type shape us when we inhale. In supersensible realms, we can actually see human souls floating on the ebb and flow of air. This is due to the fact that the eye takes hold of something else in addition to air. In animals, the astral body takes hold of air, including airborne warmth. Similarly, the human astral body takes hold of air and moves on its ebb and flow, but it also takes hold of warmth or the warmth ether. Human respiration, however, is tinged by the eye, which also moves through the cosmos on the ebb and flow of the warmth ether. Working from the inside out, the eye 
becomes speech. Working from the outside in, it becomes the human form. If we understand the concrete aspect of the activity of speaking, the cosmic shaping of words, we recognize what it is that shapes the human body from within, first in the embryo and then in the child. We shape our own bodies through forces that work sculpturally from within. This connection between the word and the human form is a reality that can be perceived in the way I have just described. Another phenomenon evident to spiritual perception is the following. If you observe a person falling asleep, the astral body remains in air-filled space when it moves out on the rhythms of the breath, but the eye disappears into the warmth of the outer world. The soul lives in air and in the warmth ether during the time between falling asleep and waking up. Thus the human constitution includes the physical human body, which actually belongs entirely to the earth, the etheric body, which has a special connection to the earth's watery or fluid element, the astral body, which belongs to the element of air, and the eye, which belongs to the element of warmth or fire. When the cosmic word moves into the human body, we can see it draw together the forces of air and warmth and combine them with the forces of water and earth. This whole interplay of forces is then developed by the internalized soul when the human being descends from the world of spirit and soul to begin an earthly existence. Although these things are apparent only to inner vision, they exist nonetheless. It is difficult to express them in the words of any of our modern languages, which are totally adapted to materialism and a materialistic worldview. But attempts to express them are important and must become increasingly successful. What the science of initiation allows us to say about higher worlds can be clothed in words that anyone can understand, in straightforward thoughts that can make themselves at home in any human soul. While it is true that these things can be discovered only through supersensible research, understanding them does not require the ability to conduct such research oneself. I have often tried to make this distinction clear by saying that we can both appreciate and critique paintings without having to be painters ourselves. Similarly, we can assess the spiritual science of anthroposophy without becoming spiritual researchers ourselves, although that possibility is also open to anyone, at least to a certain extent, through the indications in title How to Know Higher Worlds, and so forth. But the actual practical value of the contents of spiritual truths derives not from doing the research, but simply from understanding them, from taking them in. We can all taste sugar without first learning its chemical formula. Similarly, Ordinary, healthy common sense is enough to allow anyone to take in ideas derived from true spiritual research. Sugar fulfills its purpose, regardless of whether we know its chemical composition, and the same is true of supersensible truths. Whether or not they serve their intended purpose depends on how they are formulated in words or clothed in ideas. For many people, it is not especially helpful to know what has to happen if we are to arrive at these truths independently. It is like telling a child, I won't give you sugar, but let me explain its chemical composition. No doubt the child would not be satisfied with the explanation. The results of spiritual research are equally unsatisfying 
unless they can be formulated in ideas that allow us to experience them. If our souls can take these ideas in and enliven them, the results of anthroposophy begin to have practical significance for our lives. By taking in what anthroposophy has to offer, for example, the contents of the imaginal world, we do our healthy common sense a real favor. Our personalities become freer, inwardly more independent. This is something we desperately need at present and in the near future, because people today are extremely dependent on ideas that they take in but cannot confirm. A simple reminder should make this clear to you. Our contemporaries who attend political meetings or gatherings of other sorts are really like sheep in a herd. Taken in by buzzwords, speakers throw at them, they pursue ideas without being able to confirm them. In this respect, modern human beings are terribly dependent, automatically accepting anything pre-existing as a reality. Consequently, people are becoming less and less able to think. They seem to be thinking, but their thoughts are no longer illumined by spiritual light, if I may put it like that, and the result can be very strange indeed. For example, after a recent Eurythmy performance in Berlin, a very clever critic distinguished himself by saying that because the serious pieces and humorous pieces were performed using the same movements, Eurythmy is clearly not a viable artistic medium. Before the performance, the organizers made a point of explaining that Eurythmy is speech made visible and that its contents, the movements, are to be understood as speech. What are the logical consequences of the critic's comments? Would he not also have to say that if an orator uses ordinary speech sounds for serious poems, the same sounds should not be used for comic poems? This is no less contradictory than objecting to using the same movements for performing humorous and serious poems in visible speech. In short, it is absolute nonsense. People read statements like this without even noticing the lack of thought. There is no thinking involved here, just mental processes running their course and masquerading as thoughts. It is absolute idiocy. An example like this shows how much inner activity people have lost. Real thought life, real thinking activity must come from familiarizing ourselves with imaginal activity and tracking its outcomes with healthy common sense. This effort makes us more active. We revert to being personalities in the fullest sense of the word. It is especially important, however, to tackle the revelations of inspired consciousness. When we use healthy common sense to retrace inspirations that have been described to us, we gradually cease to judge things as true or false and begin to assess them as healthy or pathological. I have described this phenomenon in different ways in other contexts. When something is untrue, we have a feeling that it is pathological. When something is true, we sense that it is healthy. The logic of true and false actually applies only to the physical world. As soon as we find our way into the spiritual world, we experience truth as healthy and falsehood or error as unhealthy. Acquiring judgment of this sort by studying inspired truths prepares us to understand the Christ event. 
which occurred because humankind's evolution threatened to become unhealthy. The power that emanates from the Christ event, the mystery of Golgotha, leads the human race in the direction of truth and healing. Inspired truths make it possible for us to acquire a feeling for religious truths, especially those of Christianity. We again learn to understand why the being of the Christ is hailed as a savior in the literal sense of the word, as one who truly healed and continues to heal humankind, Latin salvus, which means safe, healthy. When the mystery of Golgotha occurred, ancient clairvoyant faculties still existed, so the people of that time were able to appreciate its significance. During the four centuries after the mystery of Golgotha, these faculties faded away until only a theoretical understanding of the event remained. Today, through our own efforts, we must again learn to appreciate the significance of this event. Until the mystery of Golgotha, the Christ inhabited the world we observe in dream-filled sleep and was therefore perceptible to everyone in their dreams. At that time, however, it was inconceivable, as the mystery schools taught, to reach the indwelling being of the Christ through earthly thoughts. That is, this being could not be discovered by anyone in the waking state. This became possible only through the mystery of Golgotha, through Christ's passage through death. Since that time we can indeed think of him as a being belonging to earthly life, the God who left the land of dreams for physical existence has become a reality for earthly life and is therefore accessible to earthly thinking. The Christ truly is the God who learned how to die, who embraced the phenomenon of death, which is otherwise foreign to the gods. The Christ is the God who descended into human nature and into the world where birth and death exist, a divinity became human. For the sake of the earth, the Christ became the archetypal human being, that which gives meaning to human existence. But let us suppose that the opposite also took place. At the same time that a god became human, a human being also became a god, immortal and no longer subject to the laws of earthly life. Needless to say, while the God who descended to earth became the most perfect human being, the human being who became divine was the most abject of immortals. And in fact this polarity actually does exist. Alongside the Christ who mounted the cross on Golgotha we find Ahasuerus, the wandering Jew. Ahasuerus became immortal, a bumbling God who cannot die but is condemned to wander the physical plane where he develops singular faculties that should actually be acquired only in dreamland. Here we confront a mystery and a tremendous spiritual reality. In addition to the God who became human, there is also a human who became a God, although of course his divinity made him miserable. In the earth's evolution this human-turned-God sustains the principle that denies the descent of the divine to the physical plane. That principle is Judaism, or the Old Testament worldview. Those who understand such matters know that Ahasuerus is an actual being, and that legends about him are based on actual perceptions of him as he appeared in one place or another. 
Ahasuerus, the man who became a god, in fact exists. He is the guardian of Judaism in the time after the mystery of Golgotha. Initiates know that Ahasuerus walks the earth to this day. Because he has become a god, we cannot see him in human form, of course. Nonetheless, he continues to wander through earthly existence. To grasp the full reality of the situation, any true historical account must include a consideration of spiritual factors. Of course, these spiritual factors often manifest only in images. The point is to realize that the images correspond to realities. It is fatuous to suggest that people should not express themselves in such images because we make use of images whenever we speak. Consider the Sanskrit word manas, for example. To anyone who understands this word, the sounds convey the image of the crescent moon holding the sun. Those who spoke the word manas in ancient Sanskrit experienced the human will-being as a bowl that holds the thinking being. All words can be traced back to images. They are merely simple, more fundamental pictures. What we express through words is not inherent in the words themselves. When we attempt to characterize more complex beings that elude a description with existing words, we must resort to verbal images, such as the legend of Ahasuerus, which are simply more complex forms of expression that point to the spiritual aspect of the subject. Anyone who rails against the use of imagery in mythology should also be incensed that human beings have developed languages for expressing content. If it is somehow wrong to use images in myths, the logical next step is to forbid people to speak, because the process of clothing a content in images is exactly the same in ordinary speech as it is in accounts of events that take place on a higher level, for example the legend of Ahasuerus. As a spiritual being active in cosmic evolution, Ahasuerus attempts to prevent the normal next step for human beings, namely the possibility of returning through the Christ to the spiritual world we left when we lost the faculty of atavistic clairvoyance. I had two reasons for telling you this today. First, I wanted to provide accurate descriptions of the sleeping and waking states in order to illustrate how we human beings are incorporated into the spiritual world. Second, I wanted to point out that spiritual beings are active in human history and must be taken into account if we wish to understand it completely. The end of lecture one.